And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. How do you know you can trust your eyes and what you've read? What makes you sure you can believe your ears and what you've been told? How many times have you trusted someone or believed in something only to have that trust betrayed and your belief proven futile? How do you know that the story of Jesus isn't a myth, a lie, or just some fairy tale designed to tickle your ears? There was a man who did the research, interviewed eyewitnesses, and verified the claims. This man was educated and honest, and his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. We'll be looking, uh, actually, this, you may feel this is a little bit too ambitious of us this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter, and then we're going to cover the whole chapter 14 this morning. Now, you got you to gotta know, we did get through it last night, but it, we got out of here at midnight last night. <laughs> that was our Saturday evening service, so I'm kidding. We, we are going to cover chapter 13. Verses 1 through 35 we'll be looking at. We did a good job at it last night, and so we'll, we'll tackle it this morning. Going to talk about repentance. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this uh, of late, but these have been pretty tough messages. Have you noticed that? And we believe here at Desert Breeze that uh, soft messages produce hard people, and hard messages produce soft people. We want to be soft people. God opposes the proud, that's a hard person, but gives grace to the humble, soft, soft people. And so these, these messages, if you respond to them appropriately, they'll make you soft. They'll make you humble and therefore a candidate of God's amazing grace. James 4, 6 says that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Take a look at your sermon notes here. We're talking about repentance this morning. No action requires more maturity and character and produces more maturity and character than repentance. Maybe you didn't see repentance quite like that. I mean, what is your perspective when it comes to repentance? What do you think of repentance? Do you think it's a weakness or a strength? And I, I, one of the questions on our growing notes, I, I start off by asking that question. What does our culture say about repentance? I think that our culture thinks it's a, it's a sign of weakness. But actually, the Bible would say, no, it's, it's a sign of strength. And, and no action requires more maturity and character and produces more maturity and character than repentance. Repentance is the key to everything in the Christian life. Maybe you didn't see repentance like that either. But listen to me. It is the key to everything in the Christian life. It is the grid in which we should process everything that happens to us in life. I, I finished last weekend's message by saying this, nothing will give you a greater experience of God's love being poured into your heart. I talked about that and wanting more of that. If you want more of that, then the key to that is, is repentance. Nothing will give you a greater experience of God's love being poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit like, like repentance. And so that's where we're headed. Uh, with this message here this morning, and I'm going to begin with prayer because we're going to need a lot of help, and we're going to do something a little bit different here this morning. We're, instead of reading the whole text, since it's a big chapter, um, we're going to uh, read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit more, talk about it, so you can see how we work our way through this text with each of these verses. And so I'm going to spend most of our time on the first two points. These are big really important for us to understand. This is really healthy theology that will bring to you really great and healthy psychology and make you a healthier person as a result of it. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. We love your presence. And as it uh, tells us in Jeremiah 2.13, we know that sin, sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, which is Jesus, for broken cisterns, wells, that run dry. And so therefore, repentance is, is turning from those broken wells, those created things, 
and turning back to Jesus, our creator, as the ultimate source of our meaning, hope, and happiness. Teach us, teach us what true repentance is and how it is the key to everything in the Christian life. And Father, as great as our sins are, it is, it is a great and additional sin to refuse to rest in your grace and accept your pardon. Give us the blessedness and release of knowing that we are completely, absolutely, freely forgiven through Jesus. In his beautiful and glorious name, we pray these things, and everyone said... Amen. So let's, uh, let me begin reading, and you can see true repentance is, and we've got a number, I think there's six of these, fill in the blanks, and then there's some subpoints underneath each of these. So true repentance is, and I, I gave you, it's, it's really a key verse in the New Testament of what repentance is. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Do you see that on your notes? See that on your notes right next to true repentance is in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11? Because other times people will say to me, well, this person, yeah, they messed up really bad, but they've repented. And I said, well, how do you know it's true repentance? Because in that, it, it gives us the distinction between uh, worldly repentance and, and godly repentance. And you need to know the difference between, between the two. You, you see, repentance is a, it's a, it's a 180. It's a U-turn. It's an about face. Uh, it's, it is a turning from sin to the Savior, but how do you know whether or not a person is actually, has actually done that, and how do you know that we are actually doing that? Uh, this distinction between both godly repentance and worldly repentance, worldly repentance is that you are uh, sorrowful because of the pain that sin has caused you. It's all about you. That's, that's worldly repentance, but, but godly repentance is that you're sorrowful. There's a sorrow, a deep sorrow over the, the pain that sin has caused God and others. It's because you realize that when you sin, you have trampled on the love and the wisdom of God. He has your best interest at heart. He loves you. And he's done so much for you. And then when you take a path that's outside of his directives in his word and act or think or, you know, whatever it is that you behave in a way that's inconsistent with God's word, you've trampled on his love and wisdom. It's a dagger to the heart of God. And you realize that. And that's what brings you back to him. And that's, that's the essence of 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Now, let me begin reading this. This is a heavy, heavy hidden text. And uh, this is what I love about Desert Breeze. I love the, the fact that we study the Bible like we do. And we just go through uh, text. We don't hop, skip, and jump through things. Because I could, I could sit through here and pick a lot of my pet, my pet uh, topics that I like. But I wouldn't say that this is necessarily a pet topic of mine. As you will see, it's pretty hard-hitting. It's a difficult one. And yet, because we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we're kind of forced to have to look at it. It's just a really a good, healthy way to study God's Word. Let me begin reading verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1. There were, some, there were some present at the very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, Pilate had some political uh, opponents, enemies, and he didn't like them. He despised them, and so he sit, sent some hitmen after them, probably soldiers, and they ambushed them while they were in worship, most vulnerable time, and they were worship, they were worship, sacrificing, and he came in there and slaughtered them, and what's, what it means is that their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. Pretty atrocious event. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Most of the people that read that or heard about that in that, uh, in that culture during that time, and that's why it's a very, very common knowledge. And, and so he says, this happened to them. And then verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that the, these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? It's a great question. And then he says, verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he gives us another example. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What in the world is he talking about there? Let's go back to our notes here. So here's the first thing. True repentance is, first fill in the blank, is a lifestyle. I believe that's what he's talking about here, and I think uh, we can understand that from the fuller context of Scripture. So, <clears throat> true repentance is a lifestyle. Now, the question he's asking here, are these people who suffered worse sinners than others? 
Are these people who suffered worse sinners than others? I mean, this is an instinctive question we ask, whether consciously or subconsciously, when bad or good happens to us. If bad things happen to us, we instinctively ask, what have I, what have I done wrong? Why is this terrible thing happening to me? And then when, when good things happen uh, to us, we instinctively ask, what have I done right? Uh, of course, I'm successful in business because I'm, I'm pretty smart. I'm moral. I'm hardworking. I mean, we kind of tend to go that direction when things go well, and then when things go bad in our lives, we kind of go, am I doing something wrong? And then we start comparing ourselves with others. And, then, and so in verses 3 and 5, and uh, Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, what's interesting about this is that he's talking to people. He's talking uh, to people. He's giving counsel to people whose lives are right now in, in a trouble-free stretch. He's talking to people who right now are not having towers fall on them. And he's giving them counsel, and I think that's important. Because he'd give counsel differently to people who are having towers fall on them. But these are people that are right now, they're not, not having towers fall on them. In fact, what's interesting here is that, keep in mind the context here is, remember where we finished off reading in chapter 12 of Luke, where it said, settle, you, settle with your accuser before judgment day. That's verses 57 through 59. That's the context. Settle with your accuser before he takes you to court, before judgment day. What is that about? Well, he's saying that in light of God because God is our accuser. We've all sinned before him. And it's saying basically, settle with him before you have to face the judgment day. When's the judgment day? The judgment day is when you die or, or the judgment day is the second coming of Christ. See, the first coming of Christ, Jesus came the first time to bear our judgment. But if you reject that, with his second coming, you will face his judgment. And he's saying, hey, settle, settle accounts before that day. While you have time, because time is running out. You're living on borrowed time, and that's, in essence, what he's, what he's wanting them to understand. And what he's saying here is that he's, he's talking to people right now who are not having towers fall on them, and the context is that, really, you need to settle with your accuser before judgment day. Now, here's, here's some fill-in-the-blanks, and this is what we can understand about this text. True repentance is a lifestyle, and so therefore we need to repent in both good and bad times in all circumstances, or we will perish. So in good times, bad times, good days, bad days, we need to repent in all circumstances. Now, now why, why would, would you say that? Why do you believe that that's what he's saying here? Repentance is the acceptance, it's the conviction of two realities. Here's the two realities. We are more sinful than we ever dared to believe and more loved than we ever dared to dream. So when you look at the cross, and we're gonna take communion here this morning, when, you, when we take communion, we're reminded of that. That you and I were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. We're more sinful than we ever dared to think. It's indispensable, there's no other way that we can have a relationship with God except through Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. But we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. He loved us so much he wanted to die for us. And that's, that's part of that. So repent in both, in both good and bad times, all circumstances, or you will perish. Why? Because we are more sinful than we ever dare to believe, but more loved than we ever dare to dream. In other words, what he's saying here is that you deserve to have a tower fall on your head, but God is committed to saving you from what you deserve if you will repent. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty heavy. In, in other words, another way that we can look at this is that this tragic event is a warning that final judgment is coming. Oh, oh, by the way, all tragedy, all tragedy that we see on the news, that we see coming at us regularly, is a warning that final judgment is coming. That's important for us to, to know and understand and I, I think another thing that we can learn from this, what Jesus is saying, is that we should never infer from disaster that God is displeased with us or infer from prosperity that God is, I mean, did I say that right? We should never infer from disaster that God is displeased with us or infer from prosperity that God is pleased with us. You guys remember, of course you do, 
the attack. And there were, there were prominent preachers that got on TV and said, that's God's judgment. Anybody remember that? Okay. I, I found that really fascinating. They should have gone to this text. This text would have helped them to understand what went down. That's God's judgment upon this nation. That's that God's judgment upon those people. And oftentimes you hear these people making these things. And Jesus is dealing with that right here. Is it because of their sin? And Jesus says, no. But unless you repent, you also will perish. And he's talking about the, the ultimate perishing in hell for all eternity. Because we all know that we're all going to perish, we're all going to die eventually. But he's talking about that, that final judgment, standing before him and giving an account. So let me say this again. We should never infer from disaster that God is displeased with us or infer from prosperity that God is pleased with us. Because, and we'll eventually get to this, in Luke 21, 16 through 19 says that God's love for his people does not exempt them from suffering and in Romans chapter 1, it hints that the worst punishment may be to get the happy life you want and never waking up to your pride, self-righteousness, and need for God. Romans 1, where you're familiar with it, where he just turns them over to their desires. Have at it. Live your hedonistic life. Enjoy life because judgment is coming. And you are so overly medicated on all the happiness in this life that you have not come to, the, come to terms with your own self-centeredness and your need for me. The Bible says that could actually be the worst kind of judgment that he could put on us. There's that tendency for some reason, and that's what Jesus is dealing with, is that in this day and time, and even in this day and time, people will say, uh, live a good life, get a good life. Because bad things don't happen to good people. So there, something must have happened. You know, you must be doing something wrong. By the way, that's what the disciples were asking Jesus in, in John chapter 9 when it came to Jesus healing the blind uh, guy, the, the son who was blind. They said, well, did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither. Remember the story of Job? How many have ever read through the book of Job? Oh, my goodness. Can you, can you bear it? I mean, it's just like it's overwhelming how difficult it is to get through that book because most of it is about uh, Job dealing with his, his three knuckle-headed miserable comforters. He's got like the worst small group in the whole world. It's like because these guys are constantly, they're just dogging the heck out of this Job saying, Job, what'd you do wrong? You must have sin in your life. Nothing this bad could happen to anyone unless they have sin. Or, Job, it's your lack of faith. By the way, that's the health and wealth gospel of, of America today. That's what they say. You must have sin in your life. You got bad things happen to you. You must not have faith. See, Jesus is refuting that. I, I think I'll go with what Jesus says, okay? I think that's, that's crazy. And so the, the tendency is for us to immediately think, wow, I, I mean, things are really going well for me, so... God must be pleased with me. Oh, don't bet on that. <laughs> or, man, things are going really bad. God must be displeased with me. You don't look at your circumstance to see whether God is pleased or displeased with you. What do you look at? How, how do you know whether or not God is pleased or displeased with you? You don't look at your circumstances. Because the Bible says you're going to have that the righteous people will suffer. And we also know that, that wicked people prosper. That's what the psalmist is dealing with in Psalm 73. He's going, oh my goodness, I'm doing all the right stuff here, God, and I've got, there's wicked people that are prospering until he gets and he goes to the temple and then he has a whole new perspective and he realizes, oh my goodness, I see the trajectory of their life. I see their path. I see where they're headed. Oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you, God, that I have you and I know where I'm headed. And he realizes what he has in, in God. So what do you, where do you go? Where do you go to see whether or not God is pleased or displeased with you? It's pretty basic. That's basic answer. Basic answer. Go to his word. You go to his standard. You just look at his standards and go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not pleasing to God because I'm like way off over here doing my own thing. Whether, whether I'm prospering or, or suffering, it, that's, that does, doesn't matter as much as whether or not you know God's word and you're living according to his word. Now, let me... Uh, 
Let me drive this point on a little bit stronger as it relates to a lifestyle. And then I'll, I'll unpack this because I'm sure that as you're trying to figure this out, so let me get this right, Pastor Ray. I'm supposed to repent in good times and bad times. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But what is that, how does that work out in my life? And we'll talk about it in the next point. But, but let me drive this point of repentance being a lifestyle uh, a little bit deeper into your heart. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Cathedral uh, Church door, um, and begin the Protestant Reformation in 1517. You, you guys familiar with that? You guys know what I'm talking about there? Reformation? You, you guys, you, you, since you're sitting in, a, in Desert Breeze Community Church, you would put your, probably self as a, you're probably a Protestant, okay? This is a Protestant church. You, you knew that, didn't you? Did you know that? This is, we're Protestant? You didn't know that? So you guys, so Protestant means that they protested against Roman Catholicism. It was a protest. And it started with Martin Luther back in 1517. Just give you a little history lesson here, okay? You guys cool with that? Okay. A little history lesson. So Martin Luther, because the, the Roman Catholicism had gone, gone really drastically bad. And, uh, and so Martin Luther tried to, because he was so convicted, he said, we need to get back to what the Bible teaches. And so he nailed this 95 Theses uh, on the Wittenberg door and that was the start of the Protestant Reformation, 1517. And the first of his 95 thesis was all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Jesus begins his ministry by saying in Mark 1, 15, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, it says in Mark 6, 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. In Acts 2.38, when Peter preaches his message to the onlookers after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it says they were cut to the heart and begin to ask, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. We know in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it says and it talks about this, this intimacy that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Quite spectacular. We have this intimacy with God. And in this intimacy, as we walk with him, we will walk in the light. And what does light do? It, it it reveals darkness. So, so as we walk with him, he's going to re reveal the darkness in our heart, and so it's going to require confession and repentance. Very clear that it's just it's part of our lifestyle. It's who we are, that we repent. That's why we need to understand the doctrine of repentance. And so that first thing is that true repentance is a lifestyle, and we are to repent both in good and bad times, or you will perish. Why? Because we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe and more loved than we ever dared to dream. Here's the next one. Let me continue reading verses 6 through 9. You guys still with me? Okay. Here we go. Verse 6. And he told this parable. So he's going to expound on this a little bit more. Give us a picture. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. The man here is God. This is God the Father. It's a picture of God the Father. And then verse 7, and he said to the vine dresser, the vine dresser is Jesus. He said to the vine dresser, look for three years, I've, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Who's the fig tree? Fig tree's us. It's, it's Israel or, or Christians or believers. I've looked for three years now and I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? That's, that would be the judgment of God. So it gives us a picture of the judgment of God, but now it's gonna give us a picture of the mercy of God or the love of God. So the judgment of God is that, that aspect of God that demands payment for sin. He's a just God. We talked about it last week. But the love of God is that aspect, or the mercy of God is that aspect that seeks our justification. And, and notice this, is, this would be Jesus. This is his response. Uh, cut it down. Why should it use up ground? Verse 8, and he answered. So this would be Jesus. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It'll bring judgment. So here's, here's the next point on your notes as it relates to uh, repentance, and that is true repentance is fruit-bearing. So if you've truly turned from sin to the Savior, you're going to produce fruit. Otherwise, it says well, you're going to face judgment because you don't really have a true faith in 
Christ. So here's what that looks like. It's on your notes. Let me give you the next couple fill in the blanks. And this is where it's gonna really help you out psychologically. This is really healthy uh, theology. When good things happen, you are grateful. So here's the fruit, because you understand that first when all the life is repentance and you're more sinful than you ever dared to think, more love than you ever dared to dream, you're repenting in good and bad times or you will perish. So this is what it looks like. When good things happen, you are grateful and not smug. In other words, you're humble because it's more than you deserve. And when bad things happen, you are hopeful and not devastated because you have never been more loved. You've never been more loved in, in Christ. So the fruit bearing you're looking for is that you are grateful in good times and hopeful in bad times. You're humble and you're confident. That's, that's the idea here. Now, uh, Matthew 3, 8, says that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That was John the Baptist that proclaimed that message. But the essence of sin is putting yourself or something else in the place of God. Think about this. You guys with me? Stay with me. Here's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is putting yourself in the place of God or putting something else in the place of God. When are you most likely to do that? Is it during good times or bad times? Sometimes, I mean, I think it varies with all of us, but I would say, and I'm gonna give, give you a strong argument here that it's primarily during the good times that we do that as opposed to the bad times because the bad times tend to put us on our knees. Would you agree with that? When you go through bad times, what do you do? Don't you, don't you start coming to church more often? You guys know that because I know some of you. I don't see you until bad times hit, okay? <laughs> so when those bad times start coming, then you start coming to church. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing, but you should have been coming the whole time anyway because it just tells you really why you're kind of using God in that whole that whole thing, but, it's, but it's, not the, it's not the good times. It's the, it's, it's, no, it's more in the good times that we, we tend to replace God with ourselves or with something else that's good. And, and I think you need to look at both good times and bad times, but there are no greater spiritual trials than to have no spiritual trials in your life. It is during trouble-free times that you inevitably start to shift the real meaning and hope and happiness of your life away from God and to the good things of your life. See, repentance isn't just for doing bad things, but also for over-trusting good things. It's called, listen, we talked about it, it was part of our New City Catechism, it's called idolatry. We put too much sense of our identity and security and significance in our job or our marriage or our kids and how they turn out or whatever it might be. That's called idolatry. And typically we do that when things are really going well. Hey, look at me, look at this. Of course I'm successful. Look at what a great person I am. Is, is kind of the attitude. I love what uh, John Newton says. He put it this way, the gospel makes the worst times, the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. Did you get that? The gospel makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. The gospel creates an incredible psychological stability. In other words, it keeps the bad times from deflating you, going to your heart, and it keeps the good times from inflating you and going to your head. When, when good things happen to you and bad things happen to you, you have to process them through repentance. You have to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. That, that would be repentance. So, so how do you do that when good times happen? I, as I was thinking about this in my own life and kind of processing, this is what I, I wrote down. When the good things happen, what do you say? Instead of being puffed up, you say, I don't deserve this. This is all by God's grace. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James 1.17. I may not have this next week. It doesn't matter because I have the most important thing. I have a place in God's family. I have intimacy with the infinite God. I will always have access to the Father as his beloved child. This is just icing on the cake. It's a great gift, but it will never, and it should never take the place of the one who gave me this gift. Does that make sense? 
So, so the gifts I'm talking about is anything that's in creation. It can be a marriage, it can be your kids, it can be a job, it can be friends, it can be health, it can be success, it can be money, it can be any of those things. That when you have those things, you're grateful but not smug. Because when you are, you set yourself up to perish. Not, maybe not, not perish in the, in the ultimate judgment because you've covered that base through Christ, but, but maybe in those smaller judgments, when that's taken from you, you will be devastated because you've built your life on those things. That's called idolatry. And so that's, it was interesting when we moved into this place, which I, I, mean, I love our facility and what God has given us here, but when we first moved in, people, the first thing that I said when we were up here, I said, what, what we have here is, is more than I deserve, more than we deserve, more than I deserve, and more than I could have ever dreamed. And I, I really believe that, and I believe that's the grace of God. And I have people come up to me and say, no, no, you deserve it, Pastor Ray. You really worked hard to get there. And I go, no, I don't. You don't understand. I don't deserve it. But you see, that's the language of our culture. Oh, you deserve it. You deserve that. No, you don't, you don't understand the gospel. I deserve hell, and you do too. Wait, 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 that's not American. No, 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 it's gospel, though. That's what the Bible teaches. That's why, it's, that's why these are hard messages, and yet it's the reality of, of, of this, is, this is reality. It's not the American way. Oh, you deserve it. You worked hard. You no, 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 the Bible's saying... He's saying, hey, you're going through a, an easy stretch in your life right now. You see the towers that fell on those people? Well, guess what? If you don't repent, you will also perish. That's what he's saying. We all deserve to have towers fall on our heads is what he's saying. Don't you understand the, the wickedness that we have in our own lives? When you understand that, then God's grace is amazing. And that you've got to understand the combination of those two. And so when good things happen to you, here, oh, here's another verse I need to make sure that I wanted to cover. 1 Corinthians 4.7 has been one of those verses that's really kind of helped me to keep balanced. It's 1 Corinthians 4.7, and it says, what makes you different from anybody else? What makes you different from anybody else? You think you're a hotshot, don't you? Huh? You got some money in the bank? Oh, you drive a cool car? Big deal. What makes you different from anybody else? Oh, you, you scored really high on your final exam there in their college class and you're top of the class and okay, okay, what makes you different from anybody else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? That's, that's pretty convicting, isn't it? Because what he's saying is that everything that we have is by God's grace. So when good things happen to you, do you repent? Are you grateful and not smug or do you say, it's about time now, you guys laughed, and they did last night, but that's a good marker of where you are if you really understand the grace of God. It's about time, God. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been putting money in the box, and, and it's about time I'd start paying off. Wait, 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 wait. Time out, time out. Do you understand what you're saying? This is the, the issue that Jesus is dealing with. See, when you cop an attitude like that, I deserve a good life, see, you're and when you begin to experience a good life, what you're doing when you say it's about time, you're robbing God of the glory and you're robbing yourself of the joy and you're not building up any spiritual capital or trust in God for, for the bad times. In fact, the bad times, see, in the bad times, you'll be filled with self-pity, bitterness, and despondency. If you're saying that in the good times, the bad times are gonna knock you sideways. You're gonna not be prepared for the bad times. And this is based on a false underlying assumption that God owes you a good life. <laughs> See, the philosophical problem of suffering isn't why, why does God allow so much suffering, but why does God allow so little suffering considering our sinfulness? You're out of touch with your sinfulness. When you look around this world, I mean, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I mean, I was on the fire department. Talk to some of our police officers here. What a wretched world we live in. You know that, don't you? There's a, we got a number of police officers. We got firefighters. We got people that we see. When I got on the fire department, I mean, it started when I started working construction. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a dark side of the world. <laughs> working with a bunch of construction workers. 
Nothing against you construction workers out there. You guys are jacked up, okay? That's just all there is to it. They're stopping off at the bar on the way home every night. I mean, talk about a crazy. It was just, it was a wicked life. I was exposed to that at a young age. Then I got on the fire department. I started seeing such a dark side of life, which, by the way, a lot of these guys, that's why divorce rate is sky high among first responders, alcoholism, suicide. Why? It is dark. This world is wicked. We are desperate. I mean, turn on the news. This whole racism thing, we can't fix that here in America today. It's jacked up. It's because people don't know God. They don't know Jesus. This thing that happened in, was it Virginia? What? That's, that's atrocious. That's just one of many things that are going on. We're wicked. We're desperate for Jesus. We're desperate for the God. That's all that's telling us. And, and so... So that's why we repent in good times. We repent in good times. We repent in bad times. What do you say in bad times? When bad things happen, what do you say? You say, Lord, I I deserve a lot worse than this. What? I know some of you have gone through really, really hard times, and yet that's nothing compared to what you would go through if you spent an eternity apart from God. That's called hell. That's... I deserve a lot worse than this, but I'm not going to get a lot worse than this because Jesus took it for me. That's what you say. Jesus took the ultimate tower falling on his head so that I don't have to face that. And because of that, I have you, God. I have you in my life. And even when I go through difficulties, you will never leave me or forsake me. And I know that my bad things are working for my good. And the truly good things can never be taken from me. And the best things are yet to come. You've promised me that. And so I trust in you. That's, that's, that's how you repent during the, the difficult times. The thing that I've lost here, whatever it might be, whether it's marriage or kids or job or friends or health or success or money, the thing I've lost here was on loan anyway. It wasn't anything I deserved, but I know you're going to give me more than I've ever deserved. I have things waiting for me in the future, guaranteed, so I'm not going to let this overthrow me. So, so here's, the, here's the understanding. Okay, I spend, I'm spending a ton of time on this. We'll pick up the pace here in just a minute. Maybe not. But, uh, <laughs> but this next point is this. Repentance in the good and bad times is based on a conviction that all the good days in this life can't give to you and all the bad days in this life can't take from you the infinite and eternal riches you have in Christ Jesus given to you at great cost by him. Did you hear that? There's no good day. Give me your best day. What's, what's the, your best day ever? That doesn't even come close to what you have in him. What's the worst day ever? It can't take away what you have in him. Tracking with me? You got that? We've got him. We've got him. We've got his grace. We've got his love. And that's, that's the point. Okay, so, so it's fruit bearing. That's the fruit we're looking at. And we could end the message right there, but we're not. And uh, true repentance is a lifestyle. It's fruit bearing. And then it's, here's the next one, verses 10 through 17. Okay, let's, let's, let's roll here. because it's going to get even better here as we walk through this. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is verse 10, chapter 13. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Think about that. Disabling spirit, 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. This is horrible. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Woo, praise God. This is awesome. This is a great story. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. That's what you do when Jesus sets you free, whether it be physically, spiritually, emotionally. When he sets you free, you glorify him. But check this out. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he gets into this lecture mode and decides to tell everybody because he doesn't give a rip about this woman. That's typical to Pharisees. That's typical of legalists. That's typical of moralists. And he gets into this little attitude lecture mode. He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed 
and not on the Sabbath. This dude's got a bit of an attitude. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Yes. Get him, Jesus. <laughs> Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? I mean, to water I mean, so he's like, you, deal with, you take care of your animals, and this woman, you don't give a rip about this woman. You don't understand. You don't have the slightest bit of understanding of the compassion of God. And he says, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Okay, here's the next point, you know, so True repentance is, is a lifestyle, it's fruit-bearing, and it's life-liberating. Listen to me, it's life-liberating. That, that's the idea here. And here's the next point in your notes. God is not a restrictor, but a liberator. God is not a restrictor, but a liberator, and therefore convicts us to lead us into greater levels of freedom and joy. So isn't that what he's doing with the Pharisees and the religious folks? He, he's, he's convicting them. He's bringing truth to them to draw their hearts to him so that they can experience freedom. They're bound up by legalism. And, and so oftentimes we're bound up and so God convicts us so the hard messages produce soft people because he's wanting what, not to shame us, but to lead us to greater levels of freedom and joy. That's, what he, that's his heart for us. And uh, Romans 2.4 Okay, listen to this. You guys with me? Okay. A couple of you. <laughs> listen to me. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Do you hear that? Listen. It's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God. When you find yourself on a path straying away from God, it's only because you're deceived into thinking you're going to be happier on that path than with Him. That's wrong. You're not. You're not thinking clearly. You're delusional. You've believed the lie. Man, it's living for him. That's where freedom is. That's where joy is. It's the goodness of God that gets us back on track. That's what's liberating. John 8, 31 and 32, it says, if you abide in my word, then you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. God's word sets us free. Now, the, the purpose of God's law, they had misunderstood and misdefined God's law. The, the purpose of God's law was to reveal really the holy nature of God. It was also to reveal our sinful nature and our need for a savior. And in coming to him and our dependency upon him, it was also to show us how to live a life that's worthy to him. But, but religion, legalism, moralism basically goes like this. It says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's legalism. If I get my act together, then God will accept me. That's what those guys believed. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, no, 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 God accepts you through Jesus Christ. Therefore, you'll want to obey. Your obedience is a response to the many blessings, the innumerable blessings that you have through Jesus Christ. But see, these guys got it all wrong. See, legalists, not only are they works righteousness, they're trying to earn their salvation rather than to enter into it and receive it, but they, legalists tend to confuse essential and non-essential doctrines and want to divide over the non-essential doctrines. There's essential and there's non-essential. Let me give you an example of that, is that, for instance, the, the uh, non-essential Non-essential doctrine, so to speak, of what we believe here at Desert Breeze is, uh, would be the form that we take. It's the difference between form and function as it relates to churches here in the valley. The form, there's a lot of different forms that churches will take. For instance, there's churches in the valley that they have stained glass and they have organs and the pastor wears robe. And I'm not against that. I think that's cool if that's, if that's what they want. That's a form. Don't turn the form into something that's sacred. It's the function that's sacred. For instance, if, so, so here, so they got stained glass organs and robes. Uh, we've got a coffee bar. Uh, we've got guitar-driven music. And Pastor Ray wears shorts, okay. And... Uh, and so that's a form, but, but, uh, but the function that you should be asking, regardless of the form that it takes, because legalists will tend to make the, the form sacred and not the function, but the function should be, are they making disciples? 
Are they worshiping God? Are they instructing people to follow him? Is this truly a place of fellowship and evangelism? And is it, are they truly helping people to, to know Jesus? Are they making fully devoted followers of Christ? And this is what, it, it never ceases to amaze me, how even to this day, uh, while we, since we've been here, that we still have people that come in here that they think that my wearing shorts is unbelievably disrespectful. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And people say, I've had people actually come up to me and say, hey, you know what, I, you know, this is a cool church and everything, but we can't get over the fact that you wear shorts. And I, I'm always thinking, man, what are you, why are you so hung up on the form? You should be asking whether or not, do we, are we making disciples? Are we truly worshiping God? Do we study God's word? That would be the more important thing. I mean, I can understand if I was wearing a Speedo up here and uh, <laughs> if, I was, if I was wearing a Speedo up here and... and uh, and then my wife would leave the church and then I would uh, get fired. But I, I would never do that. That would be horrible. And uh, Speedos are ungodly anyway. Don't any of you. <laughs> if I ever catch any of you guys wearing Speedos out there in San Diego or any other place, then uh, you're going to be excommunicated from this church. Uh, oh, he, he wears a Speedo? Oh, my goodness. We'll pray for you at the end of the service. <laughs> but, th- but that's... Uh, that would be legalism, wouldn't it, if I said that you couldn't wear a Speedo? Don't wear it to church, though, okay? <laughs> you can wear it someplace where I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, I've, I've, I've gotten way off. <laughs> Sorry. But these guys totally misunderstood the Sabbath. Listen, what, what is the Sabbath about? Why are we here today? Why would we celebrate the Sabbath? It's not about bondage making. It's about bondage breaking. Jesus is about bondage breaking. Listen to me. Why do we do what we do? Why do we practice the disciplines? Why do we come to church? I wrote it down in my notes here. It's a day of restoration, recalibration, that all the acceptance, security, and significance I'll ever need can be found in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to work for my identity and justification. I can work from my identity and justification. See, the gospel frees you from the relentless pressure of having to prove yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. Because you're already proven and secure in Christ. And so the, so the Sabbath is about reestablishing that, reminding yourself of that, resting in that. Oh my goodness, I have all the love I'll ever need. It's in you, Jesus. And so out of that, now I can live my life and live to honor and glorify you. Here's the next one, verses 18 through 21. He says, and he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And so he kind of defines a little bit of what, what it means to be a Christian. And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in the branches. He's just talking about this little tiny seed grows up into our life. It's powerful. He's talking about the power and growth that it has. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman uh, took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven, and leaven makes things grow, gets big. And that's part of it. It's the power. So true, true repentance is God empowering. God empowering. Next, uh, next fill in the blank on your notes. So that's the one, God empowering. Here's the next one. The Christian life isn't just agreement with facts in the head. Yeah, there are essential Christian truths that you need to know, you need to embrace. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's not just agreement with facts in the head. It is a power that totally transforms your life. Do you know that? Do you know when you put your faith in Jesus, you've encountered a power that can change you, that can transform your life. It can change every aspect of your life. I love Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not enough of you know that. You need to know that. It's a power. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 8, 11, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells where? In us. What? Resurrection power in me? Yes. So, okay, so here's the deal. Why are you taking a beating? I understand life's hard and all that. I understand. It's really hard. It's... it's but don't be overwhelmed. Don't be overtaken by temptation or overwhelmed by trials because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Do you understand that? 
So what are you facing? What are you up against? Whatever it is, is it a marriage, marriage issue, financial problems? Those kids, oh my goodness, they're driving you crazy? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I've been there. I've experienced that. I have my grandkids from time to time, only just for a few days, and we're like ready to send them back. But you know what? You have God's power. You have his power. What is his power? His power, Philippians 2.13, gives us desires and, and gives us power to do what he wants us to do. Whatever the capacity for human sin and suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. Jesus died. He forgives and indwells us with his presence so that unloving people can become loving. Complaining people can become joyful. Anxious people can become peaceful. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace like the gospel. I'm convinced of that. I'm gonna do everything I can to try to help you to see that more clearly. And then here's verses 22 through 30. Verses 22 through 30. This is heavy right here because he talks about the narrow, the narrow door. He said, verse 22, and when he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What, what do you guys think? Do you think there'll be more people in heaven or hell? Hell. If, you, if you're thinking hell, that's what the Bible says. There's gonna be more people in hell than there is in heaven. I mean, that's, that's in essence what he says here. He says, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Wait, 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 I thought strive. He's telling us to strive. Is he saying we have to work for it? He's not saying to work for it. He's not, grace is not opposed to, to work. It's just opposed to, to earning and achievements. It's not opposed to action. In fact, when you understand who Christ is, you're going to give every bit of your efforts towards knowing him and experiencing him. And that's what it's talking about. The word strife here literally means to agonize. You're going to do whatever it takes to know him and to walk with him and to experience him. And whatever it is that you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you gain in knowing him. And so strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. I don't know you. This is Jesus speaking to us. That's the worst thing that anyone could ever say to you to have the creator of the universe look at you at judgment day and say, I don't know this one. I don't know you. And yet it's the best experience you could ever have to know that he knows me and I know him. I have a relationship with him, and that's what he's talking about here. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. We went to Desert Breeze week in and week out, and we were part of a small group. We dropped money in the box. We even helped out in children's ministry. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Here's the next, next one. We're almost done. And so the road less traveled, true repentance is the road less traveled. The Christian life is a lifelong, passionate pursuit of a growing intimate relationship with Christ where he becomes your ultimate hope, meaning, happiness, security, significance, and satisfaction. You come to this place in your life where you acknowledge that it's your sin that separates you from God. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you turn your life over to him. You say, God, you're my life. You're my whole life. You're my significance. You're my satisfaction. And you begin to seek him like you've never sought him before. You make him the priority, the passion, the pursuit of your life. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never go hungry. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And everybody look up here. He satisfies like nothing else. 
He will satisfy you like nothing else. There's no marriage, there's no child in parenting, there's no amount of money, there's no career that will satisfy you like him. And there's nothing that will give you the security that only he can give to you. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. I love, I love his presence. I love knowing him. I, I can't believe that I, I know him and I can experience him each and every day in my life. Nothing can keep you from intimacy with God except idolatry. Idolatry is anything that captures your heart and imagination more than God. Now, there is the moment of commitment to God, and then there is the practice of commitment, which is moment by moment and lifelong. You, you can't have the moment without the practice, but you can have the practice without remembering the moment. In other words, do you know him? Are you walking with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Regardless of whether you can remember whether or not you actually made a commitment to him in your life. It's what's going on in your life right now. And let me just say that there, there are greater levels of intimacy, maturity, satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, freedom in Christ awaiting you beyond, beyond your wildest dreams in him. What is God's heart for you? This is God's heart for you. That's the next fill in the blank, verses 31 through 35. Jesus is, just pours his heart out when it comes to repentance and at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, he calls it like it is, deceitful and cunning, that's, that's Herod. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, and I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Did you notice in verse 32, he says, and on the third day I finished my course? He's talking about the resurrection there. Pretty amazing. And then he pours his heart out. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, those and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God's heart for you. True repentance is God's heart for you. A hen and her chicks was a familiar word picture for an agricultural people. So a hen shelters her young from burning heat, rain, cold, only by bearing them herself. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the next couple, last fill in the blanks. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he should turn from his way and live. Second, that's Ezekiel 18.23. Second, Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. It's, it's, not, it's not our repentance that brings the Father's love, but it's the Father's love that brings the repentance. Remember the prodigal son? When he came to his senses, he realized, wait a minute, my dad treats his servants better than I'm being treated right now. I'm going to go home. And he ran. Actually, his father ran to him when he saw him on the horizon coming. I love it. That's the picture we have here. People are not brought to repentance so much by severe rebuke as they are by undeserved love for their well-being. That's what Jesus is showing here. Now, we're going to take communion and it's for those that have taken the road less traveled. If you have a relationship with Christ, you've acknowledged your sin, you believe that he died on the cross for your sin, you've confessed him as your savior, given your life to him, feel free to take communion with us. And as we take communion, here's the next point in your notes. There is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve punishment and no sin so great that it can bring punishment on anyone who truly repents. Josh is going to lead a song here, and, and I just want to give you the background of the song. I want you to reflect on this song and begin to ask God, God, what are, you, what are you speaking to me? Some of you already know what God's speaking to you this morning, and just you want to interact with him and talk to him about those things that he's dealing with in your own life. But he's going to be singing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here, here's the background of this song. Reverend Robert Robinson was apprenticed to a barber and hairdresser when he was 14, but everything changed on May 24th, 1752, when he went to hear a sermon by the great evangelist George Whitfield. And during his sermon, Whitfield burst into tears and cried, Oh, my hears, the wrath's to come. The wrath's to come. 
Those words troubled Robinson for more than three years until he finally gave his heart to Christ on December the 10th, 1755. Robinson became a preacher of the gospel and the writer of two hymns, Mighty God, While Angels Bless Thee, and this one, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He died at age 54 while on a preaching trip in Birmingham. I just wanted you to reflect on the words as he sings this song, and, and let me pray, and then at the end of this prayer, make your way up to one of these three stations and grab the communion elements, take them back to the seat, and then reflect on the words of this song. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that there is no sin that we have committed, our sin that has been committed against us, and there is no trial or temptation that we are facing or will ever face that is a match for your rescuing, redeeming, and restoring grace that comes through repentance. And so, God, we now repent and we come to receive all that you have for us through communion. In Jesus' name, amen.